True Gay Crime contains coarse language, adult themes, and content that is violent and disturbing. If at any time you feel you need help, please refer to the toll-free crisis lines in the show notes. Welcome to another episode of True Gay Crime. I'm your host, Patrick Morano, and today we cover the story of Herbert Richard Baumeister, a.k.a. the I-70 Strangler. So Baumeister's home state is Indiana, and I know where Indiana is, but as I was doing my research, they kept mentioning Indiana as part of the Bible Belt. And, you know, I, I guess when you hear things and then you sort of piece things together and you sort of construct an image of what that thing is in your mind, but, and, and sometimes you're close and sometimes you're not, and sometimes I'm close and sometimes I'm not. And this time I wasn't very close because I Googled it because I was curious because I'm a nerd. And um, so when I looked at the states that are actually make up the Bible Belt, it totally makes sense once you look at the map because you've got Texas and Mississippi and Alabama and Kentucky and Tennessee. And so actually when I was looking here, I was like, well, where's Indiana? But so it's only parts of Indiana are part of the Bible Belt. So, you know, when I was reading the research about uh, Baumeister, who's from Indiana, and a lot of the media coverage around his story kept referring to Indiana as the Bible Belt. Well, see, now I have my two cents to throw in there, which is, guess what? Indiana is only partially in the Bible Belt. Um, but yeah, so the Bible Belt, just so you know, and then you can you can pull this out at a dinner party, you know, well, once we can go back to dinner parties, you, you know, you're standing around with cocktails and you're trying to be interesting, just bring up the Bible Belt. Okay, here we go. It's a region of the southern United States, which is socially conservative evangelical Protestantism. Again, socially conservative evangelical Protestantism. Nope. Pro, pro, prost, prostatism. Nope. Uh, anyway, it plays a strong role in the society and the politics of that area, and church attendance across the denominations is generally higher than the nation's average. So, you know, you have the, um, apparently in the Midwest area of the Great Lakes, it's religiously diverse. And then you've got the Mormon Corridor in Utah and southern Idaho. And then you've got places like in the West, like California and uh, Washington State, um, and then you've got like New England and stuff, which are um, where the residents identify a lot as non-religious. So it varies from where you are in the country. So I just thought that that was interesting. And now we know what the Bible Belt really means. I thought actually the Bible Belt was like just Catholic, but it's specifically conservative evangelical Protestantism. I can't say that word. That's a tough one. Prod Pro Protestantism. Protestantism. So it's the day after Valentine's Day. Spill it. What did you guys do? I want to hear all about it. Oh, right. We're still in quarantine, in isolation. We're socially distanced. Everything is closed. Okay. Well, let me know if you were able to think of something cute to do at home. And actually, give me any suggestions that you have from past Valentine's Days that you have done that were super successful, something that's cute and unique. I remember once I, we went to a restaurant and then um, the bill came and I was like, 400 fucking dollars. Why? Because it's Valentine's Day. That's it. Like the menu, it was, and it was kind of like a prefix or a fixed menu. It was a fixed menu and 
is so like a fixed price too, which of course I didn't look at before. It's so stupid. And then the bill comes and it's $400. And I'm like, mm. so if you can come to me with an idea that's affordable and cool for Valentine's Day, I'm going to bookmark that for next year when things are open and we have a chance to celebrate with our loved ones. Seriously, no, I want, I want to, I, I seriously want to hear your experiences and your cool ideas because I know that there are good ideas. I just can't think of them myself. So recently, also, my dog, my little puppy Maluma, turned nine months old. And it occurred to me, a couple of things occurred to me. First of all, I can't believe he's only nine. I feel like I, he's been in my life forever, first of all. Like, I, it's hard to remember a time without him, which is, seems ridiculous, but I think especially during the pandemic since we're so we're so homebound and he's been in my life continuously this whole time by my side it's like an appendage at this point he's just like a an extension of me and i can't even remember not him not being here um in like nine months and we haven't even had him for nine he's nine months old but we got him when he's two months old. So he's only been here for seven months. Like, first of all, I have had Maluma. I've been going through all the growing pains of having a puppy, of getting up early at weird times when he, we were potty training him, you know, going outside, um, you know, him crying and, and him learning routines and commands. And, and it's just been like dark circles under the eyes and anxiety and just like, am I doing the right thing? And why isn't he asleep yet? And on and on and on. Many times I've thought, oh my God, now I know what it's like to be a mother. Do you, Patrick? Do you really? Now you know what it's like to be a mother? Not really, because I put Maluma in his crate when I need to leave to run an errand. I don't think you can do that with your baby, can you? Can you put your baby in a crate and then go do groceries? Well, maybe people do, but you probably shouldn't. And then it occurred to me that nine months would be the time that, okay, we would just be, so we would be, preg say you were pregnant, it would take nine months Okay, and then you have the baby, you're starting from scratch. Now you've got how many years of crying and diapers and learning and anxiety and not sleeping. And so, Patrick, you don't know what it's like to be a mother. So stop that narrative right now in your head. But, you know, I think I made a good choice with having a dog because I get to skip all of that stuff. Because one of my best friends has a baby and I just, the horror stories of not sleeping. I am cranky pants when I don't don't sleep. Cranky pants. I'm very routine. I need my sleep. I go to bed at this time. I wake up at this time. Period. Do not disturb. So anyway, he's nine months old and he's the cutest little thing ever. So I'm really excited to get into this story now about Herbert Richard Baumeister. Again, three names. Remember, we've discussed this before. Why do they all have three names? Or is it only when people are reporting on people, they use their full name? Like, couldn't we just be saying Herbert Baumeister? Why do we have to say Herbert Richard Baumeister? I don't understand. So the sources that I used for this episode are uh, Wikipedia, of course, Murderpedia, of course, very extensive there. And in Murderpedia, they were referencing a lot, a book called Where the Bodies Are Buried, Dun, 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 by Fanny Weinstein and Melinda Wilson, um, which is a fantastic and extremely detailed book by all accounts and from what I've seen. 
also, I watched a YouTube um, program from A&E, a special called Herb Baumeister's Secret Life of a Serial Killer Documentary, which is very complete. So that has the whole story. And it's cool because actually the people that obviously I'm going to be speaking about in this story, when you watch the YouTube, you put a face uh, to the name, which is really nice to do, you know, because you construct a, what the person looks like in your face, in your in your face, in your head. And then you watch the YouTube special and you're like, oh, that's weird because they described her as pretty. Hmm. Oh, well. Um, I also want to start with a quote that I found on Murderpedia. And it goes like this. I thought it was very apropos. Evil is unspectacular and always human and shares our bed and eats at our table. Herman Melville. And that so goes to the point that I've been covering in all of these stories where people are like what not him i never would have suspected him he doesn't seem like a serial killer he doesn't look like a murderer not our son or you know not my husband well yeah because guess what evil is unspectacular and always human and shares our bed and eats at our own table so thank you herman melville i love that quote okay so without further ado here is the story of Herbert Richard Baumeister. We find ourselves in Indianapolis in the summer of 1994. The witness was scared, but he was doing the right thing. He knocked on the door and was told to enter the room. The PI sat in a chair behind a desk and motioned for the witness to have a seat. So, started the PI, you have information pertaining to my case? Yes, came the answer. Yes, I do. The witness took a deep breath and started. It was August, and I was at the 501 Club here in Indianapolis when I first saw the guy. I'm sure I'd seen him before, but I couldn't place him. He was tall, lanky, and quiet. He was staring at a missing person poster of my friend Roger that was tacked behind the bar. I just had a feeling by the creepy way he was staring at that poster that he was the man who killed my friend. There was something in his eyes. I had to know for sure, so I went up and I introduced myself. The man called himself Brian Smart and he dodged my questions about the poster. Smart invited me for a night out of fun. He said he was a landscape artist from Ohio, currently living in an empty house outside of town, preparing it for its new owners. He said it would be fun to go to the house and drink and swim. I thought it might be a way to find out more, so I went with him. We got into Smart's gray Buick with Ohio plates and headed north out of the city and through the wealthy suburbs to more expensive homes and horse farms. Then we pulled into the long, winding driveway with a sign out front. I only saw part of it, but it had the words farms in it and led to a large Tudor mansion with no lights. We entered the house through a side door. I could see boxes everywhere, and everything was a mess. I followed him through some rooms until we got to a stairwell where he told me to follow him down because there there was electricity in the basement. In the rec room, there was a bar and an indoor pool, and mannequins around the room in different poses that looked super creepy in the moonlight. He told me the mannequins were there to keep him company. He offered me a drink, but I refused, and I saw his face get dark. Then he left the room, and when he came back, he was chatty, upbeat. I'm assuming he did something like coke. He suggested I go for a swim, so I got naked and dove in. Then he started talking about how he learned this really neat trick and got out a garden hose that lay nearby. He told me if you choke someone while you're having sex, it feels really great, that you can get a great rush, and he showed me how to pinch the veins on your neck. 
He said that you know it's working because the other person's lips turn blue and their eyes start to bulge out. That's when I knew it was him. He was the killer. I thought he was going to ask to do it to me, but he asked if I could do it to him. He stripped and asked me to tie the hose around his neck. And as I did, he masturbated. By now, I was scared. I felt trapped and numb. And now it was my turn as he slipped the hose around my neck. I knew I was going to die. He started to tighten the hose and I felt the pressure build in my head. Then I got an idea. I pretended to black out and felt him ease up on the hold. He paused and whispered my name, checking to see if I was alive. Slowly, I opened my eyes. And he said that I scared the shit out of him and that people have died trying this, didn't I know? So, let's look at this situation. Who is this man? Who is this man with a fake name like Brian Smart who was flirting with murder that summer evening? His real name was Herbert Richard Baumeister, born April 7th, 1947, to father Dr. Herbert and Elizabeth Baumeister in the northern area of Indiana. A sister Barbara was born in 48 and two brothers followed, Brad in 54 and Richard in 56. His father was an anesthesiologist. That's hard for me to say. And as his medical practice took off, the family eventually moved to affluent Washington Township. His childhood was reportedly normal, except that it was mentioned that he was physically abused by his father, though we don't really know to what extent that actually happened. And also a close friend named Bill Donovan recalled that Herb would fall into strange moods when he would wonder out loud things like what it would be like to taste human pee. Um, I'm sure I've known people like that, so I don't think that's what makes you a killer, but anyway. And he also started doing strange things. For example, one morning he was on his way to school and he picked up a dead crow that had been hit by a car. He shoved it in his pocket and while the teacher wasn't looking, he dropped it on her desk. That's super creepy. Irresponsible and prone to fit of anger, Baumeister's behavior soon caught the attention of his father who, in secret, had him tested for mental disorders. I mean, in secret from the family, not in secret from Baumeister. Obviously, he knew he was being tested. After a series of tests, eventually he was diagnosed as schizophrenic with having two or more sided personality base. Unfortunately for his future victims, Baumeister never received further treatment for his illness, which I don't really understand. Because if you're Baumeister's father, why would you have your son tested and then he tests for schizophrenia, but then you just leave it? What was the point of testing him if you weren't going to do anything about it? I don't understand what the thinking was. Just so you could know and then ignore it? Weird. His high school, North Central, was sports crazy and quiet bookish Baumeister would therefore never fit in as part of the in crowd. Surprise. He tried, but never was accepted by the other students. He was active in biology, geology, government, international relations, and the chess clubs. So, friendless, he spent hours and hours alone at school and at home. His school friend Donovan says of Baumeister dating, zero. I never saw him date. He did associate with a few people, uh, but even they thought he was weird. One odd incident occurred when Baumeister offered to drive Donna and her friends to the IU football game in hopes that this might solidify him as one of the gang. On the day, he showed up in a hearse and with the lights flashing, raced to the game, laughing as he sped through traffic. People started pulling off the road, recalls Donna. He even wore a chauffeur's cap. He thought it was kind of funny. I don't really understand that because it's not an ambulance, right? It's a hearse. 
a hearse has a l- siren and why what what's the hurry like the person's dead right it's a hearse i don't is the, the flashing lights and sirens i don't in 1965, Baumeister attended Indiana University for a semester before dropping out, but returned in 67 for another semester here and there throughout the next four years, never graduating. His father, realizing he had to step in to his son's train wreck of a life, asked the Indianapolis Star, which was the area's major newspaper, to hire young Baumeister as a copyboy. Gary Donna, an advertising executive, remembers that Baumeister was quote, sensitive as to the way he was viewed and treated by those in charge. He obsessively wanted to be somebody. He dressed well and was eager, but again, he never fit in and couldn't hold a job for long, and eventually he left the paper. His father pulled some strings again, this time getting Baumeister into the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. But he started acting up almost immediately, ranting and raving at his colleagues for no reason. One Christmas, he caused a scandal by sending co-workers a card with a photo of him and another guy dressed in drag. Now, I looked for this photo online and I could not find it. If somebody has a photo of Baumeister in drag, please email it to me, truegaycrime at gmail.com. Despite his erratic behavior and inappropriate pranks, the Bureau nonetheless noticed an apparent go-get-em attitude and a high degree of intelligence. And so it wasn't long before he earned the title of Program Director. Obviously, their bar was really low at the BMV. Uh, Where other people may have smartened up and started taking their responsibilities seriously, Baumeister's behavior got worse. Once at the BMV, he pissed all... He pissed... That's right. No, you heard that. He pissed all over his boss's desk. Nobody saw him do it, but everyone knew it was him. He managed to avoid getting fired that time, but a second time he did piss on a letter addressed to the governor of Indiana, and he was shown the door. What? Like, so the first time you got away with it somehow, I guess they, they couldn't prove it was you? But then, but then instead of sort of celebrating the fact that, hey, I got away with it and then trying another prank, you go back into your boss's office and piss on his desk a second time? So in November, Baumeister marries Julie Sater in the United Methodist Church in Indianapolis. Julie was a college graduate and was introduced to him by a mutual friend. God, the poor thing. She was attracted to the tall, light-haired, boy-faced Baumeister. And at first, at least, they discovered they shared many things in common including that they were both young Republicans and they both liked cars. Like, that's it? Sounds like a love story to me. Uh, Oh, and they also dreamed about owning their own business one day. Okay, who doesn't? So that's not unique. The pressures of work and married life got to him, and a depressed Baumeister spent two months in psychiatric hospital under the suggestion of his father. Now, this is only six months after he got married. So six months, still like very newlywedy phase, He's completely depressed, and he needs to be um, put into a psychiatric hospital. Not a good sign. In the late 70s, Julie quit her job as a high school journalism instructor to concentrate on having a family. Baumeister was earning decent money at the BMV somehow, uh, which was enough to support the family. So they had children, three to be exact, Marie in 79, Eric in 81, and Emily three years later. This is obviously before the pissing incident, so maybe that was wrong chronologically, but you, you get the gist. Uh, Judy would 
Uh, Julie, oh, this is interesting, ready? Julie would later tell investigators that during their 25-year marriage, 25 years they were married, they only had intercourse six times. Six times in 25 years. Like, okay, I get it. You're with somebody for a long time. You know, the flame goes down. Got it. Okay. This is the, the, fir- the fires of passion, first passion, love isn't there after fucking 25 years. Got it. But six times? What the? Six times? And they had three children? That means half of the times they had sex, she ended up pregnant. Actually, that was probably his goal. He probably thought, listen, if I can get her pregnant, I can avoid maybe at least during the pregnancy and the next year or two after really touching her because, you know, I'll blame it on the pregnancy. Oh, don't want to hurt the baby. Six times. Three of those ended in pregnancy. When Herb was asked to leave the BMV, oh, here we go. Because of the peeing situation, his devoted, hardworking wife returned to teaching to supplement her husband's income, who was now drifting from job to job. One of his odd jobs was working in a thrift shop, which he found demeaning at first until he realized what a great business opportunity it could be. He and Julie talked it over, and based on his knowledge of running a thrift store for over the three years that he was working there, they decided to invest what money they had into their own store. Well, their own money, and they borrowed $350,000 from Herb's widowed mother, and in 1988, they opened the Save-A-Loft, Save, Save-A-Loft, Save-A-Loft, please, the lofts need saving, save one today. Sorry. Uh, they opened Save-A-Lot, Thrift in conjunction with the highly respected Children's Bureau of Indianapolis, a charity benefiting the area's families. Um, Yeah, so basically his father died, his mother had all this money now, and they borrow $350,000. I wonder if they ever paid that back. And this just goes to show you, like, I dream of opening my own business one day. Okay, do you dream of having the money to start your own business one day? Because if you don't have that, then it's not going to happen, bitch. Like, $350,000 plus their own money that they threw into that. So who knows what the final sum of the money that they threw into this, this venture in the first place. Money, it takes money to make money, folks. The shop sold, okay, so save a lot. So now let's look at save a lot. The shop was selling used uh, clothing, household goods, and a number of secondhand items. The inventory technically belonged to the charity, which in turn received a contracted percentage of the proceeds. The Save-A-Lot was tidy, and it offered only quality merchandise. It became a popular place to shop for families on a budget. Baumeister and Julie received high praise from the Children's Bureau, and the store earned 50000 bucks its first year. Soon, they opened a second store. Successful business people with means, in 1991, the Baumeisters moved from their middle-class home into the more affluent Westfield District, 20 miles from Indianapolis in Hamilton County. Here, they bought a $1 million elegant Tudor-style home called Fox Hollow Farms. Mm -hmm. Remember at the beginning of the story? He saw a sign that said farms. Oh, okay. Uh, I'll let you piece it together. The home had four bedrooms, an indoor swimming pool, and a riding stable. Its 18.5 acres provided the country tranquility in which Julie always hoped to be able to raise her children. They had achieved, quote-unquote, the American dream. However, over the years, the couple grew increasingly distant from each other. Whenever a family decision had to be made, it was Baumeister who made it. If Julie objected, she was shot down. 
The Baumeister's one-time lawyer said, quote, He called the shots, and Julie always went along for the ride. She was forced to live in his shadow. She wasn't very happy about it. More than once, the couple split up, but they always got back together. I never got that. I'm not that person. Like, if we're going to break up, break up, break up, get back, I'm not Ross and Rachel. The house at Fox Hollow Estate began to resemble the couple's marriage. The rooms were cluttered and in disarray, and the grounds around the house were overgrown with weeds. Neighbors and business associates who'd stopped by were shocked at the lack of care that happened in the home. To escape the unhappiness of her marriage, Julie would often take the children to visit Grandma for weeks on end at Grandma's condo on Lake Wawasee, and that's in the northern part of Indiana. The couple would tell their friends that Baumeister didn't go along because he was murdering innocent gay men. Oh, sorry, that was just my note. Uh, Baumeister didn't go along because he had business pressures. Not only did the couple never have sex, but Julie never saw her husband naked. Can you imagine? She doesn't even know if he's cut or uncut. Like, what? He dressed in the bathroom, and when it came time to go to bed, he would always wear pajamas. And then, I guess the six times that they had sex, they turned all the lights off, and then he just, like, shimmied on top of her. He said he was ashamed of his skinny body. Who isn't ashamed of their body? Get over it. Investigator on the case, Vandegrift, would later say when reflecting on dangerous signals, said that, quote, that should have been a tip-off to Julie that something was wrong. Uh, I disagree. I mean, so so you're telling me that Julie should have known that her husband was uh, either gay or bisexual and a serial killer because she never saw him naked? That seems like a bit of a leap. Sorry. But um, he goes on to say, I think deep inside she chose not to see the signals. Who wants to see the signals? You don't want to see the signals. If this is your partner, the last thing you want to see is a signal that they're a serial killer. So, yeah, duh, she's not looking for signals. Okay. In 1994, their son, Eric, I don't know how to pronounce this, E-R-I-C-H, Erich, 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 Erich? Okay, I'm just going to say Erich, okay? In 1994, their son Erich was playing in the woods behind the family home when he uncovered a complete human skeleton. Like, how bad are you burying the bodies that your son is playing and finds it? Like, this... God. He ran home to tell his mom. Horrified, Julie waited for her husband to return home from work. When she showed him the skeleton, he whipped up a story and explained in a monotone voice that it had belonged to his father as a dissecting skeleton and that when he was cleaning out the garage, he decided to get rid of it, so he buried it. And she bought the story, hook, line, and sinker. Now, enter into our story Virgil Vandegrift, who had been in law enforcement business long enough to have seen terrible things as a Marion County Sheriff. He started a successful private investigator firm in Indianapolis in 1982, working part-time until his retirement as sheriff in 89. And since his retirement, his PI firm had worked non-stop. He was well-respected, high-tech, astute, with his finger on the pulse, and a reputation for getting to the bottom of any case. You see, he was one of those guys, you see. That's how I picture this guy. The sort of, um, the hat, like uh, the black and white sort of, I'm a private... I'm a private investigator, you see. I got my ear to the ground. As a PI, he is often charged with the task of finding missing persons. 
He explains, quote, the way it works here in Indianapolis is that persons are not classified as missing until they are gone 24 hours. Then the case goes to the district detective, and if they don't find them in 30 days, it travels to the missing persons bureau for them to investigate. So basically, the how it works is if they don't hear anything in 24 hours, then they pass it on. And then there's a 30-day lag where nothing really happens and they don't do any investigating. So, of course, parents that want to find out what happened to their kid and wives want to find out what happened to their husband, they want to speed this along. So they hire a private investigator like Vandegriff. In June of 94, the mother of 28-year-old Alan Brassard approached Vandegrift to tell him her son was missing. Many cases usually turn out to be runaways with little or no foul play, so there was no cause for alarm right off the bat. Alan Brassard, Vandegrift learned, had had his share of troubles, including being a heavy drinker. Brassard was also gay, and Indiana, especially going back to 1994, was not friendly to the gays. Being gay meant you were an outcast breed of citizen in the very conservative Bible Belt. See, there it is, Bible Belt. There were cases popping up of gay men going missing in very similar ways, but the articles in the press were short and never front-page news. Even the officials remained lethargic. Common belief was that the victims might simply have moved on to bigger cities like San Francisco or New York, where homosexuality was readily accepted. Brassard was last seen leaving a gay bar called Brothers, so Vandegrift put up posters throughout Indianapolis with Brossard's photo asking for information from anyone who might have it. Well, I could have done that. I could, I, I could be a PI. I can put up posters. If at first Vandegrift wasn't too concerned about Brossard's disappearance, that soon changed, because by the end of July, a month after he became aware of Brassard's disappearance, he became convinced that, as he puts it, Indianapolis had a serial killer on its hands. By this time, three separate incidences had occurred, creating a recognizable pattern. So basically, starting in 1993-1994, those summers, gay men were going missing all the time. So this is the pattern that was happening. The pattern became visible when Vandegrift learned that the Indianapolis police detective named Mary Wilson was working on the disappearances of other gay men in the area, and they were all similar to the Brassard case down to their physical appearances and ages. In fact, it was in May 1993 that gay men began disappearing in the area. Dun, dun, dun. Then, Vandegrift came across a small article in a gay publication called Indiana Word that was picked up while they were scouting the gay bars for information on Brassard. The article was about a man named Jeff Jones who disappeared in mid-1993 from Indianapolis without a trace. Then, in July 94, Roger Goodlett, 34, left his mom's where he was living to go to a gay bar on 16th Street. He was approximately the same age as the others, and he disappeared as well. By this point, Vandegrift was convinced the murders were related. Like Mrs. Brassard, Goodlett's mother came to Vandegrift because she didn't want to wait for the police and go through all the red tape of waiting 30 fucking days. I mean, your kid, somebody's missing, you're going to wait 30, like who would? Vandegrift and his investigators scoured the gay bars in town, but didn't come up with much. Owners and patrons of the establishments seemed scared to talk. Uh, yeah, bitch. You're, you're coming in, you're, you're clearly like your law enforcement, even if you're a private investigator, you're still like on the side of law enforcement. And excuse me, there's a lot of bad blood between the police and gay bars. Hello, Stonewall. Stonewall. Hello, Stonewall. Hello, bathhouses. 
that this this wasn't that long ago so yeah probably they didn't want to talk to you i get it um they did learn however that goodlett had left a bar called our place with another man in a light blue car with an ohio license plate Unfortunately, Vandegrift found the police disinterested in this new information, but Vandegrift kept digging and had a breakthrough in August of 94. A, a young gay man called Mark Goodyear knew Goodlett from the bar scene. He saw Vandegrift's posters all over town and knew that he had information that the investigators would want. This is where we meet Mary Wilson, a detective working missing persons in the Indianapolis Police Department. She was dark-haired, pretty, and in her mid-40s. Vandegrift took all of his findings to the no-nonsense detective Mary, who, in fact, had been the principal investigator in the Jeff Jones disappearance, the same case that Vandegrift had read about in the Indiana Word. Mary, as it turned out, was investigating disappearances of other Indianapolis men, too, those of 20-year-old Richard Hamilton, 21-year-old Johnny Bayer, 28-year-old Alan Livingston, and others dating back to the early 90s, all of them gay. Mary recognized that Mark, as a survivor of the attack, was the connection that might help tie these many disappearances together. He had actually survived a night with a possible killer and was willing to talk about his experience. Meanwhile, plainclothes police were patrolling the gay bars. Almost a year goes by with nothing since Vandegrift and Mary Wilson were trying to track down this Brian Smart character. Police weren't cooperating either with the general feeling that the community Vandegrift insisted the killer belonged to couldn't be correct. Basically, Vandegrift was saying, okay, the killer lives up in, you know, Richtown. And everyone else was like, what? Rich people don't kill. We all know that. Rich people don't kill other people, right? And all during this time, Herb Baumeister continued to live his facade. His marriage and his business, however, were starting to crumble around him. His sexless, loveless marriage was becoming evident to neighbors as poor Julie was always depressed and anxious. And by the end of 1994, their business empire, the Save-A-Lot stores, began to suffer and the bills soared. Customers stopped coming to the stores, which were once pristine and well-managed, but had now devolved into what looked like garbage dumps with merchandise in disarray. Julie, tired of the fighting and the financial dilemmas, threatened divorce. But as the calendar turned the page to 1995, she did not act on it, but instead sat by and watched her business decline, her marriage go south, and her husband grow stranger. At work, Baumeister became a tyrant to his employees, demanding long hours, lashing out and firing people for no apparent reason, <laughs> Donald Trump. He'd disappear for hours, only to come back to work with whiskey on his breath. Finally, Vandegrift and Mary Wilson got the break they needed. Baumeister, assuming he had given the situation enough time to cool off, couldn't help himself from heading back out to the bars. And on the evening of August 29th, 1995, Baumeister walked into the Varsity Lounge, where none other than Mark sat in wait. And by this time, almost a year later, Mark had all but given up hope of ever seeing this man who had attempted to strangle him. But he recognized him immediately and chatted with him throughout the evening, knowing he had to get the license plate number for Detective Mary Wilson. Baumeister eventually got up to leave the bar. Mark offered to walk him to his car, and outside he got the license plate number of the pickup truck as it drove away. The plates, of course, did not belong to a guy named Brian Smart, as expected, but instead to 
but instead to a Herbert R. Baumeister of Westfield, Indiana, who lived in an estate called Fox Hollow Farms with a wife and children. The manor house, Mary learned, had a swimming pool in the basement. Mary knew that they had their man, so they went to the Save-A-Lot to confront him. They told Baumeister they were investigating the disappearances of men in the area and that he was a suspect. He refused to cooperate and said further communication had to be done through his lawyer. Knowing his wife, Julie, was co-owner of the manor house, they drove out to Fox Hollow Farms to search the property. Officers arriving at the house told Julie, we're investigating your husband in relation to homosexual homicide. That, that's what they said. They said, we're investigating your husband in relation to homosexual homicide. Isn't it just homicide? Why is it like, because is that a piece of the puzzle that you need to, it just sounds weird. That sounds off to me. I don't. It's, that's weird. Um, but Baumeister's wife, though unhappy in her marriage, refused to entry to the police, refusing to believe the man she married could be a criminal. That's pretty understandable. It wasn't until June of 96, six months later, that Julie finally came to her senses. Her husband was acting more and more erratically. He sold one of their stores and emptied one of their shared bank accounts. Home life was a nightmare for her, and both she and her husband started divorce proceedings as she felt no loyalty to him anymore. On June 23rd, she called her lawyer and told him to get in touch with Mary Wilson. Baumeister was currently out of town with son Erich. Erich? Erich? Erich. How did I say I was going to say it? Erich? Visiting his mother at Lake Wawasee. And she wanted to take the opportunity to tell Mary about the bones she had found in the backyard. Okay, so basically, Baumeister is out of town. He's up at his mother's condo on Lake Wawasee with his son with a weird name, Erich. Erich. Um, and then, so Julie's like, hey, Mary, come to the house. You can search now. He's not here. The next day, Mary drove out to Fox Hollow Farms. Accompanying her were two very skeptical Hamilton County officials who thought they would find animal remains and called the mission bullshit. Julie met the officers and led them to the back of the house to the wooded yard. She pointed to the spot where her son had found the remains two years earlier. As the men started searching the grounds, kicking the dirt and shrubbery, it wasn't long before they saw a foot-long bone charred from being burned along with many fragments of bone, including human teeth. There, where Baumeister's children would play hide-and-seek. Mary delivered the bags of evidence to forensic anthropologist Stephen Nauraki at the University of Indiana for an examination. His answer came almost immediately. They're human, they're recent, and they've been burned. It appeared Baumeister had burned his corpses under piles of leaves and garbage, but they wondered how could Herb have strangled and burned and buried these men without his family's knowledge. Baumeister's wife Julie explained she and the children visited widow Baumeister, leaving Herb alone at home sometimes for months on end, especially in the summer, which was exactly the timeline of when all of these guys went missing, was the summer months. 5,500 bones, teeth, and bone fragments made up about four bodies. After they had combed the entire 18 acres of the Baumeister property, their search led investigators to a neighboring area cut through with a drainage ditch that separated two properties. Here, in this ditch, were so many human ribs, vertebrae, and spines that one of the officials murmured, Jesus Christ, they're everywhere. It was now estimated the bones belonged to another seven men. The count now was at 11 men killed. 
It would be September before the anthropologists were able to identify some of the bodies, disappointingly only four, and each of these gathered from dental records. The four positively identified victims named were Roger Allen Goodlett, 34, Stephen Hale, 26, Richard Hamilton, 20, and Manuel Resendez, 31. While the search for bones continued out back, policemen scoured the inside of the home and found a semi-hidden video camera that the police immediately suspected had been used to tape the strangulations. The police now had a clear M.O. for Baumeister. He would lure young gay men back to Fox Hollow Farms. He would lead them to the pool room, offer them drinks, cocaine, and pot. Sometimes bind their hands with handcuffs. Then, through autoerotic asphyxia, which is a sexual practice involving suffocation, often to the brink of death, he would kill them. He'd dispose of the bodies by burning them and then using the bones for gravel for his yard or putting them down a nearby creek. Meanwhile, Baumeister had caught on to what was happening back at Fox Hollow Farms. Basically, the police went up to Wawasee to find him at his mother's condo and they took his son away from him, but they didn't arrest him because Mary Wilson, now that was out of her district, so she became the sort of second in charge, so she didn't have the say-so to have this man arrested, and they just did not take the opportunity right then and there to arrest this man. And guess what? He gets away! He got in his 89 gray Buick and headed north from Wawasee. Once in a little town called Fenville, he phoned his younger brother Brad, asking for money because he said he had to go on a business trip. Of course, Brad didn't know anything about what was going on with the police, so he sent him the cash. The next day, Baumeister reached Port Huron and again phoned his brother. But this time, his brother Brad knew what was going on and he told his brother that he should contact the police. Not heeding his brother's advice, Baumeister crossed the border into Canada at Sarnia on June 30th and drove east along Lake Huron to Grand Bend, Ontario. He found himself at Pinery Park where on July 2nd, a Canadian trooper asked him why he was sleeping in his car. He explained he was a tourist and needed rest. The trooper noted his luggage and a pile of videotapes in the back seat of the car. On July 3rd, he wrote his suicide note, saying he was committing suicide because of his failing business and marriage with no mentions of the murders. At the end of the three pages, he said he would eat a peanut butter sandwich and then, quote, go to sleep. He put a 357 Magnum revolver barrel to his forehead and pulled the trigger. When his body was found by campers, the tapes were gone, the video evidence of his murders gone. Now, Baumeister would posthumously be suspected of killing nine other men, the bodies of whom were found in rural areas along the corridor of I-70 between Indianapolis and Columbus, Ohio during the mid-80s. His wife Julie told authorities that her husband made as many as 100 trips to Ohio during that period on what he said was store business. In the end, 16 murders are associated with Baumeister, and it could be as high as 50. So basically, the men that they were finding along the I-70 were all gay men. It was all a little bit before... um, the, 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 the murders of 93, 94, but it was when Baumeister was making trips along the I-70, supposedly for business, and they, they were also all strangled. As many as 50. And so ends the reign of the worst serial killer in Indiana history, Herbert Richard Baumeister, a.k.a. the I-70 Strangler. Um, 50? 
50. It could be more. We don't know. The thing is, we won't know. We'll never know. We'll never know. And you know why we'll never know? Because part of the, the situation that doesn't make the investigation easier at all was the media coverage. You know, the media at the time was covering him as they were, um, they were framing him as a businessman and landowner. So, you know, somebody who owns a business and somebody who owns land. Somebody, basically, they're saying, who is respectable. And then they would talk about the victims as prostitutes, people with wayward ways, you know, that off the beaten path, you know, people that, that were not societal norms. So basically, well, because they were gay and also, and because some of them would drink and because some of them had done some prostitution, so they, what, they deserved it? So the media coverage, the police didn't care. The media didn't care. So the ball didn't get rolling for so long. So he was traveling on the I-70 doing this all along the way, strangling men, leaving them around. And then when he moves into the manor house with his family, now he's got a location where he can actually hide bodies. So he goes into the city and then captures, well, captures, I mean, lures is the right word, lures men to his, you know, trap, his home, and then commits the murders there. But it's just so sad that, you know, and it's not gay men. It's also, as we, we discussed in other podcasts, you know, with uh, Dominic, there was, uh, he was killing, you know, the vulnerable communities down in Louisiana, which were na- mainly homeless people, mainly black men. So, you know, people didn't care. They just didn't put up a fuss. They didn't put up a, they didn't question. They didn't question. That's what it was. And then again, in this story, which is interesting, and, and, I, and you see a thread throughout the different stories, but, you know, uh, diagnosed schizophrenic comes up again in this story, and with uh, history of physical abuse. So I didn't, I didn't get to see, you know, the extent of that physical abuse, but there was mention of some physical abuse there. And then, of course, again, the common thread of the repressed homosexual, um, or bisexual, or whatever, they, they said both in terms of of Baumeister, but either way, obviously he was trying to suppress a part of him. Um, And then of course we've got the drugs on top of that. And then we've got the mental health issues. I mean, that's, that's the perfect trifecta. That is, I'm discovering the perfect trifecta. It's the repressed homosexuality. It's the drug use, drug or alcohol abuse, I should say and the mental health issues. And then you can sprinkle in some physical abuse in there, some childhood trauma, uh, sprinkle that in there. I mean, so also in the story, uh, what I was discovering was that the uh, autoerotic asphyxia, probably they're deducing that the first, like he was just into that. He was into the thrill of doing that. And then they're, they're, assuming deducing or this kind of you know put together the pieces of the puzzle and they've kind of said that um probably his first victim was an accident probably the first time he was practicing autoerotic asphyxia and he killed the person once that happens once you cross that line because you already like the act of doing that and it's the whole you know taking somebody to the brink once you cross that line, they said that it's, it's, you're chasing that high again. And I mean, I know that from drugs, you know, 
you tried once, you're like, oh my God, this is amazing. Why isn't everyone doing this? And then like two years later, you're like broke, you're friendless, you know, you look terrible, you don't have a job, like, (laughs) you know, it just spirals out of control. So he was chasing the high of the first time doing that. And then you just have to keep crossing. the. It's almost like you can't cross that line and then uncross it. He took it to that place, whether on purpose or by accident, we don't know. But once you cross that line and the person dies from this act, how do you go back? Do you go back? Well, he didn't go back. Thank you for joining me. And I was, Malu, (laughs) that was my dog sneezing. Thank you for joining me. And I'll see you in the next episode of True Gay Crime. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to find the True Gay Crime Facebook page and follow us on Instagram at True Gay Crime. And we'd love to hear from you. Do you have an LGBTQ crime story from your city? You can send your story to truegaycrime at gmail.com and I'll share it on a future episode of the show. Did you know you can subscribe, rate, and review True Gay Crime on Apple Podcasts? It would mean everything to me if you did because it helps me create content you like and it lets Apple know to share it with more people. Thank you for listening. And remember, always look behind you, lock your doors, tell someone where you're going, and look out for each other. Why can't we all just get along?